Verse 9. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Now, it's always good to examine any text with the stuff that is around it. We call that the context, that which is with the text we examine. And Paul is giving a contrast here. There are certain things that we should love and there are certain things we should avoid. And he talks about the grace of God and what God has done in the previous verses. And this is a faithful saying. I want you to affirm constantly, verse 8, that those who believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to all men. Now in contrast to that which is profitable comes that which is unprofitable for the church, which can hinder, which are the things in verses 9 through 11. Foolish arguments and contentious or divisive people. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we examine this, that your spirit would give us a mind of understanding. And Father, I pray that you would help us to then not only stand, understand why and to whom it was written and what it meant, but what it means to us today that we would have a heart for truth, a heart for unity, but, Lord, that we would always see that unity must be based upon truth, not upon that which is false, not upon sentimentalism, but upon your truth that is so beautifully and aptly laid out in the Word of God. Lord, I pray that as a body of Christ, we would be able to, in love and in grace, grow together and edify one another, and build one another up, that our attitude would be, how can I serve, how can I reach out and help those around me? That that would be first and foremost, desiring to see others and considering them, as the Scripture says, better than ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. I have had a book in my library for a number of years, and I pulled it out every now and then, but I decided to give it a good looking over the last couple of days and read through it uh, for tonight's study. It's a book called Well-Intentioned Dragons. Well-Intentioned Dragons. And the subtitle is How to Minister to Problem People Within the Church whom he designates as well-intentioned dragons. Now, any pastor who would be handed that book would smile, knowing, oh man, I could use this book. Because there are always well-intentioned dragons, as he puts it, within the church. And so I have a couple of highlights from, I think, the second chapter that I brought with you, just to sort of outline where this guy is coming from. And he sort of... um, categorizes these dragons uh, with interesting terms. The first one he calls the bird dog. The bird dog. Four-legged bird dogs point where the hunter should shoot. Two-legged bird dogs love to be the pastor's eyes, ears, and nose, sniffing out items for attention. If I were you, 
the bird dog will say, I'd give Mrs. Greenlee a call. She has some marital problems that you need to confront. Or, we need more activities for the youth in this church. Or, why doesn't the church do something about, you fill in the blank. Of particular bother is the super spiritual bird dog. This purebred strain is more likely to point out things that always leave the pastor feeling defensive and not quite spiritual. Well, the Lord has laid it on my heart that we need to be praying more for renewal. Who could argue otherwise? Or, well, we need to develop more discipleship and maturity within this congregation, wouldn't you say, Pastor? These people like to give the impression that they have more spiritual perception than anyone else. Then there's the wet blanket. If you have ever heard the phrase, it's no use trying, then you've probably spotted the wet blanket. These people have a negative disposition that is contagious. They spread gloom. They erase excitement. They bog down the ministry. Their motto is, nothing ventured, nothing lost. In business meetings, they exhibit the same attitude toward any step of faith. We've tried that before. It didn't work, is a familiar refrain. Because of their intimidating personalities, people are reluctant to vote against them. The entrepreneur. Just the opposite of the wet blanket. The entrepreneur is enthusiastic. He's the first to greet visitors at the church and invite them to his home. Unfortunately, in attention to, uh, addition to being enthusiastic about the church, he is equally eager to sell them vitamins, bee pollen, or car wax. You've met a few, haven't you? Brother. Captain Bluster. This is the person who comes from the Union Stewart School of Diplomacy and speaks with an exclamation point instead of a period. This kind of person is a steamroller who flattens anyone in his way with his overwhelming certainty that his is the only way to do it. Negotiation is a dirty word. Compromise is unspeakable. If this person is on a church board that has settled a sensitive issue privately, but he wasn't completely satisfied with the decision, he's likely to bring it up again in the congregational meeting because he enjoys the fireworks. These are just a few of the dragons that ministers encounter. There are many others too numerous to mention in detail, so he mentions a few others. Uh, the busybody, who enjoys telling others how to do their jobs. The sniper, who avoids face-to-face conflict but picks off pastors with pot shots and private conversations, such as the cryptic, be sure and pray for our pastor, he has some problems, you know. <laughs> then there's the bookkeeper, who keeps written records of everything the pastor does that isn't in the spirit of Christ. And then there's the merchant of muck, who breeds dissatisfaction by attracting others who knows, uh, attracting others who know that he's more willing to listen to and elaborate on things that are wrong in the church. The legalist, who lists of absolutes stretches from the kind of car a pastor can drive to the number of verses in a hymn that must be sung. Any of these can inhibit growth and can be in any congregation. Uh, I've got to say this uh, after reading that. 
there are some like that around. But for the most part, this body is the, is the most enjoyable group of people to be around. And I've had, I say that not only from myself, but people who come and visit, either from other congregations or who are guest speakers, see the excitement that is present in this fellowship for the Word of God and in worship and in fellowship and in activities, just an excitement to see what God would do. Now, there are those exceptions. There are those black dots on the white sheet, but there's a whole lot more white around that black dot. But because of well-intentioned dragons, that's why Stuart Briscoe said the qualifications for a pastor is that he has to have the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the hide of a rhinoceros. And I think that's probably true. And if we go back in chapter 1, it is for this reason that the Apostle Paul tells Titus that he should set in order things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city because of these dragons. And some of them were extreme in nature. And those that are extreme in nature are mentioned in verses 9 through 11. We've already seen them mentioned in chapter 1. To outline these verses... First of all, we should avoid dissension. That's the thrust of what he's saying in verse 9. Avoid dissension. There's always going to be well-intentioned dragons who seek to upset the apple cart, who love the fireworks, who like to bring in opposing viewpoints and seek to draw other people to their side, to their camp. And so in verse 9, avoid dissension. Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law. And in the context here, it's the law of Moses. For they are unprofitable and they are useless. Now, there were false teachers that were doing exactly what verse 9 said not to do. That's why he gave this warning. Because there were people running around doing them. They are described in many verses. And if you go back to chapter 1... We see in verse 10 that this group is related to Judaism. There's an element of Jewish legalism that is involved in their teachings. They're of the circumcision. Verse 10, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. It seems that this group was trying to make money on their contentions. They were using their false teachings to enrich themselves, and that was their motivation. Verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. They were pressing upon men fables, myths, stories from the past, Jewish ideas that weren't founded in the Scripture, and they were pushing them on people. Look down at verse 14. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. As we go on in our text in this book, their teaching and their manner of life led to immorality. Look down at uh, verse 16. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. And then we get to our text, verse 9 seems that their teaching was characterized by speculation, a false intellectualism, speculative intellectualism. It was filled with disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law of Moses. And he said to avoid them because they are unprofitable and useless. 
apparently there was a group of people and it seemed that their teaching sort of uh, was becoming something. Uh, it wasn't pure Judaism, but it was becoming something else. They were Jewish in background. They had lots of other mythological sources. But the thrust of their teaching is that the work of Jesus Christ and simple faith in Jesus Christ wasn't enough. You needed something more that they had to offer. You needed their stories, their myths, the teachings of their rabbis. Uh, They might say something like, well, I know you believe in Jesus, but... Have you heard? Did you know? Have you been deprived? Secondly, they were saying that grace was not enough. In order to be right with God, it's good to believe in Jesus, but you had to add to what he has done. And you had to add by rules, regulations, certain rituals, initiatory rites that brought you closer to God. And once you've gone through these ceremonies, you sort of graduated to a magna cum laude Christian. You're a little bit higher up than just your average run-of-the-mill Christian. That is where it began. As it developed in Crete, in Asia Minor, in many places where the gospel spread, it became known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism implies what the name means, knowledge. They said they had a greater knowledge than every other Christian. They knew more. And uh, if you want to know more, you had to come through their secret rituals and rites and be elevated to a higher plane. We've told you before that Gnostics taught that Jesus didn't have a human body, that he was a phantom, that when Jesus would walk on the sand, he would not leave footprints because he wasn't human. They said he wasn't human because the Gnostics said the material universe is evil. Anything material is evil. Thus, God did not create the material universe because a good God wouldn't create something evil. And Jesus could not be of the material universe because he was perfect. Hence, Jesus was not a real human. And God didn't create the universe. But that God created sub-gods or emanations. And eventually, an emanation was so far away from God that that emanation being did not even know Creator God and that emanation created the universe. They had all sorts of fanciful stories and very elaborate myths. And so they were telling Christians, these new believers, you need more. What Paul and what Titus are telling you just ain't enough. And so come closer. And here's some genealogies that you need to memorize and They would get into arguments and disputes like the rabbis about the law. Here's the basic thrust. Boil it all down. You have a kernel of belief that even we today need to watch out for. And that is the idea that Jesus is not enough. The Holy Spirit living within you and the Word of God is not enough. You need something more. It's kind of a neo-Gnostic thought today. It's, it's prevalent, and there are many circles, and we could list several of them, but I think there's sort of an elitism about some Christians who would sort of look down their nose at other Christians. Well, I know you're just this and that, but let me enlighten you. You need more. I think that there is a psychotherapeutic movement within the church 
that kind of by and large looks down at Christians who would just say, I believe in the Word of God and I believe that the Holy Spirit can change a life. Oh, that's so naive, they would say. If you only knew what we have studied for these last several years, we have our master's degree and we have our doctorate degree in this stuff. Oh, you dumb Christians. Or some will say, well, I'm a Christian, but the Bible and the Holy Spirit still aren't enough. I've been enlightened. Anything that would say Jesus Christ living in you and the power of the Holy Spirit working through you with God's resources and the Word of God aren't enough, avoid. Shun. There's another movement that's going around. Um, It's very, very prevalent and uh, it's catching on in churches. I would call it an accommodation movement. I call it that simply because this movement seeks to accommodate whatever the world is into, into the church. The idea is this. Well, if unbelievers aren't going to come by us preaching truth and preaching the gospel and singing Christian songs, well, let's entertain the world then. Let's let's water it down. Let's compromise. Let's make it seeker or user-friendly. Whatever it takes to bring in the crowds, we'll do it. We will compromise truth for the sake of results. Because they are saying, what we had is not enough. There's another movement. Um, I would call it emotionalism. Not emotion. Uh, God loves your emotions. He gave them to you. Emotionalism is a movement that, whether stated or not, at least it's a tacit agreement, that says it's more important how you feel than what you know. If you feel good, that's the most important thing. How do you feel about reading that text? It doesn't matter what the Bible means, but it matters how the Bible makes you feel or what it means to you personally. And so emotionalism. Well, did you feel God tonight? Yes, all right. And the Holy Spirit was there. Did you feel God tonight? Well, no, yeah. Quench the Spirit. Spirit wasn't there. It is very prevalent in many circles. Now, in chapter 1, and I don't want to equate the Gnostics necessarily with uh, these groups of people, but they're just hints of this Gnostic elitism in many of these circles. But back where we read in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1, Paul says that their mouths must be stopped. The mouths of the false teachers in the church have got to be stopped. Now, how? Well, he gives us a hint in our text tonight. Avoid them. You want their mouths to be stopped? From false doctrine, don't give them your ear. Don't go to their churches. Don't listen to their television programs or radio programs. Don't buy their books. Don't go to their seminaries. If it's false teaching, it says avoid them. The word avoid here means to turn oneself around for the purpose of avoiding something. It means to shun something or someone. It means to treat someone with indifference. It was sort of the same idea when Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He said, he gave a list of teachings and errant thoughts, and he said, from such, withdraw yourself. Now notice how it's described in verse 9. He said, avoid foolish disputes. The word foolish is the word monos, where we get the word moron. And it would be better translated, 
shun moronic conversations. Conversations about things that are of no value. Foolish arguments, foolish contentions, moronic discussions, controversial teachings or somebody with novel insights or silly questions. I remember when I was a young Christian, somebody asked me, if God is so great and powerful and mighty and sovereign, could God create a rock so heavy that God couldn't lift? Now, I wish I would have known about this verse, but I didn't. And I sat there going through a trial. It's like, oh, man. And I just like stewed over that. I tried to reason that out. Then I realized this is stupid. But there are some who try to make a big deal out of absolutely nothing. And these are time wasters. You could spend your time more profitably than trying to think about something that lame. Who cares? If he wants to, let him. Trying to make too much out of something that is small. There are people who see deep meaning in, in, in the silliest things. Uh, a guy came to me one time when we had, years ago, when we were meeting in our first rented church facility over on Eubank. And he came with a photograph, and the photograph was a picture of himself, and there was a light above his head. It was a Polaroid picture, so the quality wasn't that great. And uh, he, he showed me it and uh, showed me a couple of them. One was a picture of himself, one was from another angle. But he said, look, this light, this is the Holy Spirit above me. And it's the anointing. He's anointed me for service. And he got all excited about, you know, uh, this sign. And my background used to be photography. And after looking at a few of the pictures, I saw that it was the exact same light pattern in all of the photographs, whether they were pictures of him or not. It was a light leak on the film that, you know, excited the silver nitrate on the paper and it overexposed it. I tried to explain it to him. And you would have thought that I was a heretic. <laughs> because I used my mind. I, I thought. And I gave him a rational explanation. Now, I don't mind miracles. I don't mind signs. I don't mind lights above your head if God wants to do it. But some people just make a big deal out of nothing. There's a story I found about an engineer, a psychologist, and a theologian who were hunting in the woods of Canada. And they came across, as the story goes, an isolated cabin far removed from any town. Because friendly hospitality is a virtue practiced by those who live in the wilderness, the hunters knocked on the door to ask permission to rest. No one answered their knocks. But discovering the cabin was unlocked, they entered. It was a simple place, two rooms with a minimum of furniture and a household full of equipment. Nothing was surprising about the cabin except the stove. It was a large pot-bellied stove made out of cast iron. What was unusual was its location. It was suspended in midair by wires attached to the ceiling beams. Fascinating, said the psychologist. It is obvious that this lonely trapper, isolated from humanity, has elevated his stove so that he can curl up under it and vicariously experience a return to the womb. 
Nonsense, said the engineer. The man is simply applying the laws of thermodynamics. By elevating his stove, he has discovered a way to distribute the heat more evenly throughout his cabin. With all due respect, interrupted the theologian, I'm sure that hanging his stove from the ceiling has religious connotations. Fire lifted up has been a religious symbol for centuries. The three continued to debate the subject for several hours without resolving the issue. When the trapper finally returned, they immediately asked him why he had hung his heavy potbelly stove by wires from the ceiling. His answer was succinct. Had plenty of wire, not much stovepipe. That's simple. Why make a big issue out of it? It's just a light leak on the picture. That's all. Chill, relax. Doesn't mean God hasn't anointed you because it's a light leak. It's just what it is. Avoid foolish disputes, moronic conversations, genealogies. They made a lot out of Old Testament genealogical lists and found odd meanings in them. Contentions could mean arguments. You know, there are some people that just love to argue. That's sort of what they want to do. That's sort of why they come to certain people. They just love to argue. They may couch their questions or uh, their topics very well. So, you know, I was just wondering... And I have a little question. When you seek to answer the question, it really is just an argument. Um, Some people love to argue the issue. Uh, Is it pre-tribulation rapture, mid-tribulation rapture, post-tribulation rapture, and argue the fine points? There are some people who will sit and argue about uh, issues about the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, within the church. People that love to argue about baptismal regeneration. There are people from certain churches, I don't think I need to name their denominations, it seemed that God has just allowed them to exist just so there would be plenty of contentious people running around the face of the earth. And they will come and they will knock on the door, they'll come into the church or they'll talk to you, and they have one singular issue. You are not saved until you are baptized by us in our church. Period. End of discussion. You can give them 18 different scriptures on why it's wrong. They don't want the scriptures. They want you to know their viewpoint. And they want to argue. Unfortunately, churches themselves split over people who love to argue. Well-intentioned dragons. You know, I have... um, examined churches and why they split for years. Every time I hear of one, I will try to investigate what exactly happened. So often, it is the smallest issue that divided the church. Well, this committee argued with this committee over exactly what color the carpet would be in the sanctuary. And it caused a split. So-and-so said, I'm going to start my own church down the street. Contentions within the church. Now, I do want to balance this out by saying there are certain topics, there are certain items that we must contend for, right? Didn't it say that in Jude? Contend earnestly for the faith, that is the body of apostolic teaching, once for all delivered to the saints. There are essentials in doctrine, and there are non-essentials. 
And there's that old axiom in the Reformation that many of the Reformers used to say. They would say, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. Secondly, let's look at verse 10. Not only should we avoid the first one that is mentioned in verse 9, which is dissension, but in verse 10, it talks about a divisive person. So we should avoid division or divisiveness. Reject, that's a strong word, isn't it? A divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. We should avoid divisiveness. We ought to avoid divisiveness in a person. That is, don't let a divisive person go on dividing other people. The word divisive is the Greek word heretikos, or heretic is what the word means. A divisive person. We would translate it in English, a heretic. The word originally meant to choose. That's all a heretic was. It was a person who made a choice. But it came to mean a person who made a choice irrespective of the choices of anybody else. They made a personal choice that was against the Word of God, the consensus of Scripture, and the consensus of the body of Christ. And their choice to believe in something or act a certain way brought a division in the body of Christ. That's what it came to mean. That's what the word started out meaning, and it came to mean a person who is divisive, a heretikos. Spurgeon said, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. Scorpions, we know, are interesting insects in that they not only kill and eat other insects, but they'll kill and eat themselves, their own kind. An experiment was started where someone took a hundred scorpions and put them in a, in a glass container and watched. There were 14 who survived. The rest were killed and eaten by other scorpions. Then they took a pregnant scorpion and put that mother isolated in a glass container As soon as the babies were born, with one exception, she killed and devoured her own young. One tiny baby scorpion survived and perched itself on his mother's back. And eventually, when he had the opportunity, as if in revenge, killed his mother and ate his mother when he got a little bit bigger. Then it says that if scorpions are really put into a corner and uh, taunted, that they will use their flexible stinger and sting themselves several times to death. Now, they can't eat themselves because they're dead, but they will kill themselves. Here you've got a powerful creature capable of surviving on other instincts, survival of the fittest, but it will kill its own. Now, we've all met certain scorpion Christians. they got their stingers ready at all times. Now, they might have honey on the top of the stinger, so it looks sweet and nice, but they're ready for the kill. Well-intentioned scorpions. What do you do with them? Do you sting them back? Do you hit them harder? It says here we are to approach them and admonish them twice. A divisive person 
You give them two strikes, three strikes, they are out. You are to reject. And the idea is to reject from fellowship within the church. You warn them. You go up to them and say, what you're doing in teaching is divisive. It's causing a group to go here and there. And uh, it's errant doctrine and it's not good behavior. Stop it. No. Tell them again. If the issue creeps up again, put him out of the church. This is not a foreign concept. Listen to what Jesus said in uh, Matthew 18. By the way, this idea here of admonition means to confront him. It's the word nuthesia, a nuthetic approach. You confront that person. It's not easy to do, but it's necessary. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. So you've approached him once. If he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. That's where our third point comes in. We're to avoid not only dissension, we're not only to avoid a divisive person, but we are to exercise discipline when necessary. For it says here, after the second admonition, we're to reject, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, and being self-condemned. We're to deal gently, we're to deal firmly, and we're to deal swiftly with people who are divisive, either by choosing wrong theology, doctrine against Christ, or inappropriate behavior. I'm not saying that we should be perfect people, we know that, but inappropriate behavior that would lead others to sin. Now Jesus said in Matthew 18, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, they understood that from a Jewish perspective. They didn't like tax collectors. They were outcasts. Heathens to the Jews were outcasts. In other words, in the assembly, in the context, treat him as an outcast. That doesn't mean he is necessarily a heathen and a tax collector because he might go out there for a little bit after being cast out and repent and come back to the fold. But you are to treat him, he said, Jesus said, as a heathen and a tax collector. Cut him out of the fellowship. Paul the Apostle was vocal about this on more than one occasion, wasn't he? He often spoke about the love of the fellowship, the unity of the body of Christ, but that truth and unity can never be separated. Paul never said, oh, don't worry if people don't believe in Jesus and think that he was just an emanation. Don't worry if some people think Jesus was just a nice guy who appeared and then left, but he really wasn't God. Oh, don't worry. Just hug everybody. Just get together and run a big auditorium with thousands of people, and it doesn't matter what they believe, but, but sing those songs ever so sweet. Paul made it clear that true unity was always based on truth. When a person is involved in non-essential issues, the speaking in tongues, uh, Mid, pre, or post-tribulationism. Certain things, it doesn't matter. Those aren't essentials of the Christian faith, but there are essentials. Who is God? Who is Jesus Christ? How is a person saved? Did Jesus rise from the dead bodily? All of those core issues. And then there are behavioral considerations. If a person says, hey, I'm a Christian. But if that person says he's a Christian, but is outwardly living a life of sin, Paul said, get him out. 
because a little leaven leavens a whole lump. Let me refer you to a few scriptures. Romans chapter 16. In verse 17 and 18, Paul said, and you can mark these, you can look them up, you can write them down, you can whatever. I urge you, brethren, note those who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. He wrote to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him. Same word, confront him as a brother. Then I mentioned there was that case in the Corinthian church, wasn't there? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a case where there was incest. Incest within the church itself. And the church felt so magnanimous that they just overlooked it. They tolerated it. Ah, you know, grace, love, peace. Forget it. And so Paul wrote them a letter and he said, It is actually reported that there is sexual sin among you. And it is the kind that does not even happen among people who do not know God. A man there has his father's wife, and you are proud. You should have been filled with sadness so that the man who did this should be put out of your group. I am not there with you in person, but I am with you in spirit. I have already judged the man who did that sin as if I were really there. When you meet together in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I meet with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, then hand this man over to Satan. So his sinful self will be destroyed and his spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, put them out of the church. If a person is living in sexual immorality, claiming to be a Christian, you know what Paul said? Paul wrote further on. I didn't quote the whole chapters to you, six, uh, 5, 6, and 7. But he said, I wrote you and I told you not to even eat or keep company with a sexually immoral person who claims to be a Christian. Now he said, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you should divide yourself or not be around all sexually immoral people because he said then you'd have to leave the world. But those who claim to be believers, living a very open lifestyle, unrepentant sin. Hey, I'm living together with this girl. Oh, we're just, yeah, well, you know, we have, of course we have sexual relations, but we love God and we feel like God has spoke. Don't even eat with the person. You're not to fellowship with the person. That person is to be put out of the church. And it happened on several occasions. The goal, you say, well, that's harsh. Well, Paul spoke about it in terms of leaven. You understand what that means. A little leaven, he said, leavens the whole lump of dough. A little yeast will work its way through that whole loaf of bread. So, first of all, the goal is to protect the church. By isolating a person and not letting that person fellowship with other Christians will protect the other members of the church who otherwise would say, well, if he's doing it, I can do it. It'll rub off, he said. But secondly, it is to restore the sinning brother or sister. It's to restore. 
We make no apologies here at Calvary Chapel for doing exactly what we've just been talking about. There have been many occasions where either by doctrine or by very open sin, we've had to confront a person who said, tough. And we've had to ask the person, yea, command the person to leave the fellowship. We've had formal meetings where the elders have gotten together. We've admonished him in his sin, and he has left the fellowship. Now, what often will happen is the person will say, you know, I'll shake the dust off my feet. I'll find another church who will let me get away with it. When we find out, especially if we have a good relationship with that church, we will contact the pastor immediately. So we just want you to know that you've got somebody in there who's living in open defiance of the Word of God. And they'll usually say, thank you so much. I'll make sure that they leave until they get right with God through your fellowship. I have had more success stories doing this, folks. I have letters at home in files of one brother in particular who was disfellowshipped, who came back to the church, who came and stood before the board of elders, weeping and repenting and saying, I want to be restored to God and to the body of Christ, but I know that I first have to repent before you. And they've gotten right and restored back into the church. That's the purpose of it, to restore them back and then to protect the church. Now, a warning in a church this size. I know that in a church this size, well, it's hard to keep tabs on everybody. We don't feel like we're supposed to be the gospel Gestapo or anything like that. But when we hear, when we are informed of areas like this, that's when we act. Through kinship leaders, through home fellowship leaders, through some of the other smaller groups, or just relationally people meet, we're informed. We tell them to go to the person. If that doesn't work, we tell them to take a representative, an elder from the church, to go and meet with them and confront them. If that doesn't work, we bring in the representative body, the board of elders. Now, I know also in a church this size that there are people who come in because it's a large church. And they come in to draw people away. I've met several of them. We've caught several of them from different cultic groups trying to bring people, uh, you know, talk either if it's the shepherding movement or something, that they're trying to find younger Christians and draw them unto themselves. Just a warning. We love our sheep. If we catch you doing that, you're in big trouble. We will not deal kindly with you. We will admonish you. And if there is no repentance, you're out on your ear. If you're trying to spew false doctrine or bring people alongside your little group and you're afraid to deal with it openly, we love God's sheep. We don't want to see them destroyed. I've seen too many of them destroyed. So, first of all, avoid arguments. Avoid division, but if there is a divisive person, reject such after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped, sinning, being self-condemned. Actually, one of the marks of a strong church is that it can defend itself, right? The body of Christ, being the body, has built-in mechanisms called the gift of discernment 
and other gifts that can deal with that. It's just like your body. And when you have a cut, those little white blood cells called leukocytes invade the area and uh, kill each other off and form pus around it to get rid of the infection. It's marvelous. The body of Christ, to function properly, should have the same mechanisms. So there's going to be dragons within the church, even well-intentioned dragons. They must be dealt with, but we have to be careful how we deal with them. We have to be careful how we deal with them. Unfortunately, we've got the Word of God to tell us how. But if you know of somebody who's divisive, don't go up and be divisive. There's an old folk wisdom that says, never get into a spitting match with a skunk. Admonish gently but firmly and say, I've heard what you've said. I've watched what you're doing. I love you enough to confront you about this. Well, don't judge me, brother. Oh, I'm not trying to judge you, but this is a serious issue. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. The kisses of an enemy are deceitful. I'm not going to pat you on the back here. I've observed this. Well, tough. I'm not going to respond. Well, I do want you to know that I'm going to bring this up before the leadership of the church and follow through with it to protect the body of Christ and to bring that person back to his wits spiritually. I want to close with something I found in a book called The Harvest of Humanity by John Siemens. He told this story. A German soldier was wounded. He was ordered to go to the military hospital for treatment. When he arrived at the large and imposing building, he saw two doors. One was marked for the slightly wounded. The other was marked for the seriously wounded. He entered through the first door and found himself going down a long hall. At the end of it were two more doors. One marked for officers, the other one for non-officers. He entered through the latter and found himself going through another long hallway. At the end of it were two more doors. One marked for party members only, the other marked for non-party members only. He took the second door. When he opened it, he found himself out on the street. When the soldier returned home, his mother asked him, How did you get along at the hospital? Well, mother, he replied, to tell the truth, the people there didn't do anything for me but you ought to see the tremendous organization they have. Now, churches can be like that. They can be organized and they've got their groups on this night and this person's over this group and this person has this little group. But the purpose of the body of Christ is to minister to each other, to help each other, to protect, to build up, to keep out false doctrine, to enrich and adorn the true doctrine of God. It's not just organization. It's organism. It's not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. It is not the pastor's job or a staff's job to minister to everybody in the church. It is the job of the body of Christ As I read Ephesians, it says that God has raised up evangelists, pastors, teachers, and others to train and equip the rest of the body to do the work of the ministry. That's how I read the text, very plainly. To train up others to do the work of the ministry. 
That's one of the most exciting things about ministering around here is the lay leadership. You see needs and you respond. You see hurts and you pull out the right band-aid. I love seeing the body of Christ operate like that. I love watching God work through you. It's an honor and a privilege to be involved in such a healthy body of believers. Let's pray. Father, we do not want to rest on any laurels. This is a work that you have done, and we often need reminding, lest our motives or our actions are impure. We pray, Father, that we would avoid any kind of dissension, any kind of division, but that we would admonish those who are causing division to deal gently, firmly, swiftly with any of those who would cause division either by their actions or by their words. We pray, Father, that you would help us to distinguish and know, each of us, what is essential, what is worth dividing over, and what is non-essential. And Lord, help us to be able to speak about issues without an ad hominem attack, without attacking people in particular. Lord, I pray that as we see people caught in false doctrine, we would not only see them as wolves, but even beyond that, we would see them as isolated people, even hurt sheep, that we would keep them from hurting the rest of the body of Christ, but we would seek, if at all possible, to minister and to win that person to a place of being right with you. Lord, I pray that our love would always be based upon truth. Our unity would always be based upon truth. We'd never separate truth from love or love from truth. Lord, we thank you for all of the resources that you have given to us. Help us to use them wisely. In Jesus' name, amen.